Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning has gone completely virtual. We've taken both our Level 1 and Level 2 courses and loaded them onto an online platform so that you can digest the power of this amazing operating system from the comfort of your home. We combine this recorded video experience with live Zoom labs to bring all the principles and practices of reconditioning to life through applied case study. In turn, you walk away with how to best use this language of common practice to bring the worlds of therapy and performance together in one powerful approach that creates lasting change in your client's performance. This fall, ReconditioningHQ.com is launching a complete experience package that brings all of the video teachings together with a powerful mentorship program and a weekly community touchpoint so you can grow as the reconditioning revolution grows. We are truly excited about the possibilities. We believe that success in any venture begins with the right mindset. We know that the statistics for burnout in human performance are significant and that many of our colleagues face questions every day about personal fulfillment and living their best life. This is why we've started a landmark program for human performance professionals called Empower You. This program is all about crafting your best life, living purposefully, and enjoying the fruits of your impassioned labor. For more information about reconditioning courses or our amazing Empower You program, head over to reconditioninghq.com and use the coupon code LYM50 for $50 Canadian off the program of your choice. Understatement alert for sports performance coaches and proactive healthcare professionals, the last six months have been very challenging. We are now seeing the permanent changes in our profession, how our services are delivered, are affected, and we must adapt. Providing safe and effective health and fitness coaching has never been more needed, yet never been more uncertain. Matrix Fitness Canada wants to help you in your journey. Matrix Fitness is a premier brand of fitness equipment designed for organizations, professionals, and exercisers alike. If you are refreshing your facility, they can help. If you are in need of setting up clients with their home gym space, they can help. The Matrix Fitness Canada Ambassador Program is designed to help you expand the reach of your services. This program supports your expertise in supporting home gym design so your clients can have what they need to continue to subscribe to your services. The best part? You can insert yourself into the economic equation as a Matrix Fitness Canada Ambassador. For more information on requirements to qualify and the details around their services, please connect with Nikki.Turner at jhtcanada.com. Welcome to our newest Leave Your Mark sponsor, Rep Performance. Rep Performance is a web application founded by NHLers Nick Foligno and his strength and conditioning coach, Callan McGibbon. Understanding the importance of the developmental stages and their impact on long-term athlete development, they launched an online performance for coaches, trainers, or teachers that would instill a foundation of fitness, share their story, and help them ensure no athlete slips through the cracks and they are equipped to succeed in sport in life. Visit them at Rep Performance App 
Com. I was recently honored to have the opportunity to host the Altus uh, poolside chats at their virtual ACP. And in this first segment that I'm going to uh, post on Leave Your Mark, I uh, had the opportunity to chat with uh, Stu McGill, Dan Paff, and Matt Jordan, all very accomplished professionals. We had a great conversation about a whole bunch of things in, per- in performance, really around return to performance and return to play. Um, I've been allowed to post them up to my community on Leave Your Mark, so I leave them for your interest. Also, those of you who are interested in reconditioning, um, we have courses coming up December 5th, 6th in our R1 Foundations and December 12th, 13th for our R2 Designs course, and we'll have a whole host of dates coming for New Year uh, 2021. Looking forward to that new year and starting uh, to really explore the possibilities of our community. So otherwise, enjoy this podcast podcast and have a great day okay welcome guys welcome matt jordan welcome um Stu mcgill uh and it, forgive me Stu, if i ever say Stu mcmillan because Stu's in the house too and they always my brain keeps flicking back and forth on those two stews but uh, i don't think either of these guys need a formal introduction Stu mcgill obviously a world-class expert in the management of back in, injuries and issues and and beyond that scope and the things he's contributed to the industry have been quite substantial on the other side of that uh matt jordan a good friend of mine We've worked together on many projects over the years, and he is, uh, without a doubt, uh, a true expert in the field of return to performance and performance as it is. And then the beautiful, lovely Dan Path has just arrived, uh, and he doesn't need a big introduction either. So we have a a phenomenal um, panel here on this discussion of return to performance. This is really about that call it the third phase for lack of a better term where we're returning an athlete from an injury back to sport. And, you know, we're not going to, we can kind of talk a little bit background wise about that first and second phase a little bit, but where we want to really dial and talk a lot about is this last phase is we're getting ready to put somebody back on the playing field, on the pitch, on the track, on the ice, et cetera. And there's this kind of phasic, reality of that how we sort of do that well and sometimes where we go wrong and so we have a great coach and dan to give us some perspective from a coach's perspective we have two um, industry leaders really in this area in different sort of domains matt has a huge background in, in acl uh, research and Stu obviously has a huge background in research around the spine but these things cross over into any kind of uh any kind of issue area if you have your videos on if you don't mind turning them off just so we keep the thank you very much appreciate that so guys i'm going to open it up and i think i'll i'll start with uh maddie um just to sort of set the table here you know you do a lot of um data analysis and you're testing at the front end of your athlete um, process that sets up your ability to look at an athlete uh, down the road when they do have an injury and understand whether they're truly ready to go. So maybe set the table for us with that in terms of what do we need to know when we're starting out so that when we do have an injury, we can make a better decision for return to sport. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I guess I, I would start it off by saying that, you know, when you're, when you're working in elite sport and, 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 uh, you are, um, you're really afforded a, a pretty cool study design that, 
that a lot of people wish they could have. And that is that idea of a longitudinal design. You know, you have people coming in at various stages of their life and career and you can capture them um, over time. And if you're working in Olympic sport, um, you know, especially you might spend a decade of your life or more with an athlete as they move through time. And so I guess the first part of the answer to your question, Scotty, is that, um, you know, what you're trying to do potentially, uh, is to capture this and grow your data set, which is going to allow you to sort of extract specific answers to the question you asked which is according to your environment and according to the athlete population you're working with and to really allow you to exploit that, you know, N equal one case study type example where, 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 uh, where I think, you know, our, our efforts oftentimes matter most. So um, that's kind of a general answer to, to, to the first part of the question. But then the second part is that um, we're building a baseline uh, and, and that baseline is sort of capturing over time, you know, what somebody's, you know, um, typical pattern, typical, uh, typical movement strategy, um, to capture, you know, capacity, uh, capacity measures. So thinking things like, you know, strength and rate of force development, those, those capacity oriented, uh, uh, pieces and, and to that end, when you have that pre-injury picture, it can serve, uh, as a really valuable post-injury indicator, um, uh, especially when, um, especially when you've got an athlete at the front side, who's actually representative of their close to their pinnacle. So they're fit, they're strong, they're able to do the things that they need to be able to do. And just, I think this is where the conversation will go is because it's so individual, um, you know, having an individual, you know, picture of what, of what, um, of what shapes that person's capacities and strategies is, is a, is a real valuable piece down the road. Uh, as a as a benchmark. Cool. I wanted to start with that because now I want to flip over to Stu because and and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Stu, in terms of the history of, and dynamics of the way you operate. But f- fundamentally, the sort of the difference maker is uh, Matt's been working in the industry of Olympic performance athletes. He's usually got a cohort of athletes that he's working with. He's taking testing and and sort of working through with as he's talked about years of studying those athletes, then they get injured and then they're coming back. You're often working with somebody who's been injured or hasn't come back. And now you're trying to rebuild them and put them back. How do you then determine what they need to be able to do so you can make a decision on whether they're ready to do it? Right. Well, uh, my answer would be uh, philosophically the same as Matt's. Um, so uh, let me give the framework for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first question is, and in my case, the answer is always yes. Have they had a history of injury? And in my case, it's specific. They've had uh, back issues. So uh, I have to deal with that. Once they've gained a robust training capacity now, then the game shifts and my, assist, my second assessment shifts uh, and that will define how they're going to uh, tune their body is a phrase I often use to, to get them back to competition. So stage one, 
Do they have pain? Well, yes, in my case, they do. I have a very specific, uh, thorough assessment to try and converge on a precise understanding of the mechanism of their pain. What have been the impediments in the past? And those could be impediments all the way through from uh, the social environment of their team. They have a trainer and a coach that's actually an impediment to them getting better for whatever reason. We could talk all kinds of uh, examples uh, there. Or it might be uh, simply the way they train. They don't allow enough adaptation after a training stimulus. Their movements might be creating stress concentrations or whatever. So we try and stop the cause and build that foundation to be pain-free and begin capacity building. But once they're out of pain, uh, my second role would be to really assess the specific demands of the sport. And uh, as Matt pointed out, you know, a lot of traditional strength coaches, they'll say, oh, well, what is sufficient strength? What is ideal mobility? More is always better. But uh, I think you said speed of contraction, was it, Matt? Something like that? Yep. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So speed of contraction, rate of muscle relaxation, all of these variables that uh, traditionally and more commonly are left off the table. But I define those in terms of the demand of the sport. And then I measure the athlete. Are they capable of meeting the demands of that sport. And then, uh, again, they're coming to me because of something being non-optimal. Uh, it's news to them that more strength may not be better. More mobility may not be better. It's a matter of fine-tuning their body, and there's no free lunch here. Uh, you can't have more endurance and a more explosive metabolism, for example. They're mutually exclusive, so you've got to choose which way you're going to tune uh, your body and training. But uh, we measure what do they need, what do they have, and then we train what they don't have and what they need. And uh, hopefully we get it right and get them back to competition. So that, that's the framework of it without specific examples. And do you have anything to add to that, the, the frame of that conversation? And in, in essence, what, you know, what you're looking for um, to set the table for your your return to sport, uh, you know, decision-making? Not really. I mean, those guys covered the, the big rocks. But from, from a coach standpoint, you know, I encourage coaches to look at everything they do, everything that's on the menu as a screen or a map or a template. Yeah, there's bandwidths to that. But it, do, do we know where there's ceilings and basements to work capacity on all of our menu items? Do we have movement maps to judge against? Do we have movement maps that are fluid? So your movement expression early in a session versus late in a session as you're building out these capacities. So where I see a lot of gaps is coaches or therapists don't really have defined ceilings and basement numerically to the encounters this athlete's undertaking during the daily plan or the weekly plan. And so if you don't know where the bar is, then, you know, what are you judging against? So 
That sort of sets me into this um, area that tends to be one of the more difficult elements. And I want you guys to take off your hat of I'm managing the whole project to I'm working with people or with the, you know, with a coach, with an athlete, with a, and, and I know that's the spectrum of reality, but quite often what happens is that there's the therapeutic sort of process and it's often based on kind of tissue tolerance and tissue healing and, um, you know, the sort of stages of what we expect. And then there's the athletes staying connected to the sport and their process and their planning and all these things and that dovetail of those two things. So what have you traditionally done? And I'll spin back to Matt on this so that the athlete doesn't end up getting the call it the rehab exercise portfolio and the training exercise portfolio and all these different loads and we're in a, in essence overtraining the athlete because we've got too much stuff we're sand, sandwiching into there we're trying to put 10 pounds of you know what into a five pound bag so to speak yeah yeah i mean i i think to scotty you know to 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 give like you know a specific example of what you're of what you're talking about is um, you think about an ACL rehab and you think about the possibility that this athlete might go to four or five, six different people at any one point in time to, to get treatment or advice or prescription. And, um, and, and everybody, you know, everybody conceivably is there to help. And so you're giving your input. And if you have six people who are all well-intentioned, who are all pri- providing an input, on something that athletes should be doing. Let's say it's re-strengthening the hamstrings after, after their uh, uh, semi-tendinosis autograph. And every practitioner is giving their input to say, hey, don't forget about doing this. And, you know, my suggestion would be is that you do some hamstring stuff before training. And, well, I think you should be doing some hamstring stuff after training. And I think you should be doing it twice a week. I think you should be doing it three times a week. The next thing you know, you got this poor athlete who's doing hamstring training five days a week, two times a day. And they're wondering why their strength isn't improving. And, and I think that that's what you're pointing to is that, you know, we've got, we've got a, we've got to manage, we've got to manage a team. And so, you know, to that end, Scotty, I think, I think the short answer is, is that, um, and we, we published a paper recently in, in the frontiers, uh, on, on a case study. And what we talked about was the idea of a, a holacracy. And, and that term was, was uh, brought to my attention by a friend of mine when I was trying to describe that it's contextual leadership that we do as a team. And so that everyone's at the table and different people are stepping forward to, to manage this complex process. And, uh, you know, Scotty, I think, I think three specific things come to mind. Number one, start all your conversations with data. So, you know, and again, I'm not talking... Um, whatever measurable you can get, start a conversation around something objective rather than just what you think or feel as a practitioner. Once you've done that, go to what you think and feel as a practitioner. And you, you need to remember in, as you, as you manage that, that, that our, our instincts, our, our coach instinct is, is an absolute key part of the puzzle, right? So you can't be exclusive one way or the other. And I think the third piece is that to manage the inputs, you need to have you need to have a team that can operate in a safe space, but also in a in a really challenging space towards each other to arrive at, you know, to arrive at uh, what will be the plan. And uh, all I can say is that despite my best efforts over my career and today, that's still always our Achilles' heel. 
you know, unless you're, unless you're a sole person doing everything yourself, which does happen in some cases, um, you know, you're going to have to be able to bring people together from other, 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 you know, with who wear other stripes on their shoulders based on their, on their backgrounds and their professional experience. We're going to have to bring those people together to manage the, the thing that you said is we don't want to have, you know, um, um, six people who are well-intentioned, but each are doing their own thing. Um, and so that comes down to a leadership piece, Scotty, in my opinion, and just group management, team management philosophy. I want to pivot off that to go to Stu for a second. Stu, um, talk a little bit about, you know, you have tissue damage. There's a process of healing that that tissue is going to go through. And then it has to have load tolerance over time. At the same time, we've got this performance athlete who fundamentally probably can tolerate loads on other muscle dynamics much more significantly. So the strength is rising, the capacity is rising, but you still have this tissue that was damaged that needs to build actual tolerance to stress. How do you, how have you navigated those two things? How do you recognize the healing process, but at the same time recognize that the athlete starts to get stronger, fitter, more capable, et cetera. And we still need to, to make sure that that tissue, the actual tissue that was damaged has time to actually heal the way it needs to heal. Well, that's both an art and a science. Uh, we, use our best foundational science to know about uh, adaptation rates of tissues. Uh, for example, all I can use is specific athletes here. So if we were to take a, uh, a power lifter, say a real grand old man or a real grand old woman of powerlifting who are setting their, their personal bests in their 30s and even in their early 40s, they have taken years and years and years to adapt the bone density, the matrix of, of, of bone inside their vertebra to withstand the compressive load. And then some trainer comes along with a, a young athlete and has them deadlifting twice their body weight in three months or something like that, not realizing that they are now, they've crossed the tipping point and they're accumulating cumulative uh, micro damage to that bone, which will, it's okay for a little while, but it's going to overrun the rate of uh, adaptation over time. So that would be just an example of uh, that particular tissue. It does adapt. It takes an awful long time. Muscle strength, which is what the strength coaches are familiar with, adapts very, very quickly. So it's a mistake to think that the rest of it uh, comes along. Um, for specific disc injuries, I need to know the nature of the disc injury. If it's an end plate fracture and the disc has flattened, um, uh, it, it, it may be easy to stiffen, but now you've kicked off a cascade. In other words, if you break your leg and the uh, fracture develops a callus over it, within three months, that fracture site is actually now stronger than the virgin bone on the other side. That's an entirely different thing from having a disc injury where the disc flattens a little bit, you've migrated load onto the facet joints. So if you don't back off on the motion, they are going to be motion intolerant quite soon. And now the joint has all kinds of micro movements in it. So 
they will probably take 10 years to engineer out those micro movements through biological stiffening. However, through coaching, you could coach that person through appropriate bracing patterns within their movement rubric, whatever that happens to be. Um, and you know how some athletes are coachable and some aren't. <laughs> so some are able to do it with uh, a 10 second coaching cue. And then the next one just doesn't seem to get it. So I don't know if that really answers uh, your question, but uh, that's, that's the, the scientific biological uh, answer to the question. But then there's the whole uh, social side as well, I suppose, where you have parents and coaches <laughs> all with different uh, expectations that, uh, you know, can I just make one comment? It's, sure. it's somewhat appropriate to this comment, but uh, I, I was just smiling to myself as, as Matt was uh, giving his explanation, you know, and I'm sure Matt, you've had this as well. You've got a parent who thinks they have the next Wayne Gretzky and uh, that this poor kid is sitting there in front of you with their parent. And invariably the parent answers all the questions and they say, yeah, we do this on Monday. We do strength training on Tuesday. We do uh, movement and speed training. And then, uh, Oh, in the evening we do sports psychology. And then, you know, we do all of this, uh, is, is what the parents' narrative is. And then uh, I just keep quiet. And then at the very end, I look at the player and I say, when was your last day off? Absolute silence. <laughs> and uh, then, you know, the, the, the parent sometimes gets it at that point. But, you know, that, that, that's really a, a, a family dynamic that if you can't deal with that uh, in certain players then uh, you're, you're heavily compromised as well. <laughs> Our sponsor, Rep Performance, is a web application launched by co-founders Nick Foligno and Callan McGibbon. Their platform is designed for teachers and youth sport coaches with pre-designed testing templates and AI-driven workouts geared to individual needs. They aim to provide every coach the ability to develop fitness for life in the athletes of tomorrow, share their story, and help them ensure no athlete slips through the cracks, and they are equipped to succeed in sport and life. Visit them at repperformanceapp.com today. Our sponsor, Matrix Fitness, produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike. With equipment that focuses on building speed, power, and explosive performance in most efficient manner, Matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations worldwide. COVID has forced us all to rethink how we are offering our services. With that in mind, Matrix Fitness Canada has created an ambassador program designed to help you expand the reach of your services. This program supports your expertise in supporting home gym design so your clients can have what they need to continue to subscribe to your services. The best part? You can insert yourself into the economic equation as a Matrix Fitness Canada ambassador. For more information on requirements to qualify and the details around their services, please connect with Nikki.turner at jhtcanada.com. Beautiful. I want to go to uh, Dan a little bit because you've you've had a few of these kind of last minute injuries over the years where you've had to sort of manage out something that, you know, for all intents and purposes, most a lot of people would expect probably was an injury that was gonna terminate a season for somebody, but you were able to get them to return to sport and actually compete and, and win. And so 
in in having sort of played through those adventures, what have you discovered about what you what we need to um, you know understand about tissue healing and what we can kind of work around you know in, in essence work around to achieve the goal so to speak i hope you understand that question yeah it's kind of what Stu is referring to earlier there there's an art <clears throat> combined with the science here so this is kind of an intuitive art if you will so i i think it starts with de- defining kpis for where you're at in the time frame you have to operate and developing a hierarchy of these kpis so what's absolutely essential that has to happen and then what is the microdosing possibility to keep that tendency or trend alive or functional? So like with Greg Rutherford, the long jumper, KPI was he had to jump at least once a week to stay sharp. So everything was built like how do we set this guy up to jump? And then what is the dosing of jump that he can tolerate with this given injury construct? <clears throat> Next level, well, he's got to run down the runway. So we've got to do some acceleration and some speed work. But like I said earlier, do we know the basement or the microdose numbers that still polish the car on those menu items but don't overstress the net system? I think a thing that's overlooked is, is the therapy input. Therapy is stress. So when you're in this time warp, well-meaning therapists can be doing the right thing, but it's overlooked. Mm-hmm. And now it's interrupted your KPI hierarchy energy distribution because you put it all into therapy. So the different types of therapy. So we even have rankings on energetics of therapy cost. So like rolfing would be tremendously costly. Effleurage would be less costly. You know, certain types of techniques, whether it's manual adjustments, distraction, distraction with rotation. So through time, we try to come up with patterns and trends on the cost of therapeutic inputs. And then on these training menu items, there's obviously costs like an acceleration workout is not as costly on the structural system as a speed workout. So trying to manipulate this jigsaw puzzle in the right order at the right time but it circles back to knowing your menu items and ranking them and understanding the net cost on these various body systems in total. Mm. Matt, when you hear that, what, is, what, what, what uh, strikes you when you listen to what Dan talked about there? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the big thing that strikes me and, and this is more for, you know, coaches that are, are coming up the ranks is that, you know, one of the, if I ask, a, 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 let's say an intern to develop a training program and let's say he's going to present, you know, I, I, I'm trying to avoid the, the, the trivial example here, but let's say that person's going to present in front of a group of their peers and their, you know, senior strength coaches, uh, their, their program, invariably what you see in that program is that they have, they, you know, they have, they have tried to accomplish absolutely everything that they have heard and learned and, and seen and watched and trying to jam it into a plan, a single program. 
And, and what they're not doing the analysis of is the cost uh, versus benefit. And the fact that you, you know, I think, I think Stu put this well, is you don't get anything for free in this, right? You have, there, there's a, um, to develop your strength, there is a cost to something else. Can't do it all. And I think that that is, that is the, that is the true moving target for a coach is being able to distill down onto what are the most important things I need to focus on today for this person. And as Dan likes to put it, you know, like, I mean, I always, you know, Dan's been one of my, my, my greatest mentors over, over so many years. It's, it's being able to prioritize those KPIs and to understand where do you need to put your energy and, um, you know, one of the things too, I would say, Scotty, cause I know we're talking here, you know, that idea of return to health and performance is that, um, the KPIs ha- have to happen there, right? The tendency is, is if you don't really focus on what the KPIs are, you try to, and again, it goes back to even the question you asked me earlier is the athlete begins to try to focus on absolutely everything at once. And, and we know that's impossible. You cannot get ahead in life by having a to-do list of a hundred things and trying to give them equal weight in terms of your efforts. You have to, you have to put your attention on certain things specifically. And to Dan's point, you can do the same thing at return to sport is you can, you can, you can be, you can develop some heuristics, you know, propulsive ability, energy absorption ability, uh, movement quality, movement strategy, capacity. You can, you can get these mailboxes. It's another Dan pathism, but those mailboxes of, you know, where are you going to sort your athletes KPIs and how are you going to prioritize your efforts? And certainly if there's one thing I can say around it is that, you know, is, you know, the, the sitting down and doing that as a coach might be the most important thing you do, the most important step. And if you are involved in an extensive rehab, um, you know, our, our team at the CSI Calgary, uh, Drew Lawson, I see is on the call and he's part of that team. Um, you know, we just recently were, were involved with an athlete who had a full knee dislocation. Um, you can imagine a horrendous injury, you know, and we're not talking six months, uh, six months, this guy's just, you know, just barely getting out of that tissue healing stage, you know, full patellar tendon rupture reconstruction, you know, every ligament destroyed. And you can imagine throughout this long process we are constantly having to go through a process of gap analysis, identifying what's missing, strategizing on the best possible plan of attack to address the issues, reevaluating to see if we move the needle, and moving forward, as Dan put it, to keep those things that we've been working on at that base level without letting them slide back while we move on to the next priority. And you know, and that's, and that is the dance in, in return to health and performance that you're making is it's this constant balance between that tissue healing capacity building and, and redevelopment of, of, and, uh, of movement strategies that, that, that athlete needs to be able to do what they do. And all I can say is it's not linear, right? Like just because you, I mean, we'll often see that with our, our skiers getting back on snow, just because they exit that phase of your plan with flying colors in terms of your assessments of KPIs and capacities that they've redeveloped. We you know, Scotty, we've seen it. They get back on snow six weeks later, you're back and you're re you're putting another, uh, another putting them through another assessment for KPIs. And you're starting to realize that everything that you had before have slid back, right? Because they've compensated, they're in a different environment. So, 
this is a this is a key piece of the puzzle, Scotty. And when I listen to Dan talk there, I just come back to the the, the essential part of programming is to distill down on what's important. I uh, I'll just end by saying, you know, Dan probably doesn't remember remember this, but I was down in in Texas, and I remember uh, with Stu. And I remember Dan sort of giving me free reign of his filing cabinets. And he had all of his programs that he used with one of his athletes, uh, a gold medalist in the Olympics. And I remember looking at how simple they were, you know, handwritten, you know, very, very, very simple, two to three things on each, each menu, right. Each program each day. But you could see that that was the process was distilling down on what was necessary and discarding what wasn't. And, you know, I used to pin those up on our board, in our, in our, in our, uh, our uh, office over at the university. And we'd have students go through that process of designing KPIs. And I would present that here's the KPIs from an elite coach. What, what were your KPIs? <laughs> you know, it's, it's key. It's a key, key, key awareness point in, in our development. So it's a great, uh, great, great question. Stu, do you have any comments off of that or, and I offer this up as a question I'm interested in based on sort of your comment earlier with the parent piece is what do you start, what do you, what have you done from a strategy perspective with the athlete themselves when they start to recognize, Hey, I can do what I need to do, but you know, they're not ready. How do you demonstrate to that them to that like you've got a boxer you've got a combative athlete right. they they know they can do they feel like they're ready to go but the, you need to demonstrate to them that they still have some icing to lay on that cake and and how have you broached that with the athlete right well uh, the answer uh yet again comes from the assessment uh i had an athlete that would just be a perfect example this morning actually uh as you know with some athletes, you have to hold them back. They're their own worst enemy. That's why they have an orthopedic problem. <laughs> the next athlete really doesn't like to train, and they are under the mark. Do you see what I mean? So to say to one, uh, you know, you're, you're not injured, uh, carry on, uh, that might that strategy or that philosophy may help the one who's a little bit uh, reticent and on the undertrained side, but that's a disaster for the one who is hard driven and thinks more is better. Um, I know you, uh, of course, have a, a strong hockey background years ago, and I noticed a real shift in the NHL. We're both old enough to remember this. Do you remember when the Russians really came on and uh, there was several influences on almost every team in the league? And to watch them train, they were, I thought, much more dialed in at being um, more honed in on doing a few things very, very well. And the ones from the more Canadian philosophy, and I'm going back 30 years, uh, really didn't have that precision and honing uh, on their program. And uh, I learned a lot just from observing that. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that really gets to your question, but because of, you know, you have one athlete uh, at, at one end and, and uh, an entirely different personality and structure around them, uh, you, you have to answer that question depending on the individual characteristics of the athlete in the situation and the sport. 
Uh, these things are very sport cultural specific as well. You used a, a, a fighter as an example. That that team has a very different culture than, say, a group of, uh, I don't know, coming out of a tennis academy or uh, a volleyball camp or uh, a hockey club, for example. Anyway. Um, off of Matt's comment, Dan, um, when you hear what Matt said about, you know, this small menu of items that you were working with in your programming what what generated or created that approach in you that you became very very dialed in on what you were going to do and there wasn't this long cascade of stuff that you were throwing at the athlete and you you became very measured about what you what you did and why you were doing it I think life changed my paradigm um when I was a young coach my, my weekly workout was three pages long. <laughs> it was impossible to measure everything we were doing. Kids were getting distracted. You know, I'm fine. By day three, people were totally lost. <clears throat> By day five, we were so far away from the program that it was obvious. I had no clue why, why I wrote what I wrote. And so... <clears throat> I was kind of forced into essentialism. I was like, okay, I don't have support staff or a lot of resources around me. I am the gatekeeper. What can I measure and what is absolutely essential? And let's start here. And then the second thing was <clears throat> I kept getting injured athletes, like really badly injured athletes. And I was like, okay. They're already stressed from the injury. They're going to school. They have a class load. They're financially broke. They got all these stressors. I, how much stress can I put on these guys in a given day? So then I would say, like, how stressful is this activity? How stressful is that? And like Stu said, you know, athletes have certain preferences or biases. So if they enjoy doing something and they see value in doing something, the net cost isn't as high as something they don't understand or they dislike or it's a true training gap. That's going to cost more to implement that. So I was constantly doing ergonomic analysis on the batteries of these various systems, the tissue battery, the emotional battery, the immune battery, the hormonal battery, like what are the net cost of these menu ideas? And that eventually led me into like a three-day rollover cycle where we just cycle three types of workouts and you can expand and contract so the essentialism took me from six-week cycles to three-day cycles. Comments on that, Matt, a little bit of, um, on the minimal, call it the minimal effective dose kind of strategy and recognizing what you really need to do and what, what is kind of superfluous and how you sort of navigate that process as a strength conditioning coach. But back to the question we asked earlier, within the context of working with other people, um, you know, making sure that, you know, every day is not this new fandangly program, but that you're actually consistently modifying and modifying one thing and seeing what, what changes in the next, instead of throwing all kinds of salt and pepper in it right away. Oh yeah. I mean, and that's a tough one, right? Because I, I mean, um, no, Scotty, I mean, I know that's one of the things that you've been working on in your career, 
at this phase is how do you give a common language to people who are on the um, performance end of the equation versus the rehabilitation end of the equation. Right. And you, and you, and you see sort of like, you know, you're in one club or the other. And I think you're, you're, you know, your, your life's work today is about creating some, some link there and, and sort of not having them be dichotomous. Um, you know, we, we, we often run into that program our program. We often run into that problem where, you know, um, the, we're not accounting for that on the other end of that spreadsheet, <laughs> that word document, that, you know, whatever you're doing to write stuff down, there's somebody on the other side who's going to, who's going to listen to that and who's going to follow that plan. And I, I think that Scotty, what you're, what you're addressing here about the idea about where, um, where we go off, off course on that, um, is very often when people have not really been taught the coaching programming side of the craft that we're in. Um, if you coach, if you coached from a young age, you know, and, and it's one of the most important characteristics, I would say that when I uh, sort of seek new interns or we seek new people joining our team, what's your sport background? What did you play? Who have you coached? Tell us about your coaching experience, because what you start to realize, whether you coach 12 year olds or 15 year olds or Olympians, is that you need to connect your knowledge to something that that somebody's going to have to receive and, and, and do. And I think at the end of the day, Scotty, it's a skill, right? It's a skill to understand. Yeah, I can't. This person is doing a rehab after an ACL injury. I cannot put 50 exercises on a word doc and expect that this person's going to do it in warm up before they go on and do their actual training program. Um, just because I found problems and I found things that I think are, are issues. I'm not going to be able to write an exercise for every single little thing that I think they might need to work on, even though it seems highly comprehensive to the person writing the program. And like you're being thorough and detailed, it is impossible impossibly hard. How about that for somebody to do that productively? Just come back to it. Like, what are your, what are your two or three priorities and how are you going to ensure that you address them um, and, and to do it to the highest possible level? And, you know, I mean, Scotty, I'm kind of, um, I kind of still feel myself gravitating towards what every, every time I write a program at the end of the day, let's say it's a, a rehab a program for somebody coming back after an injury or whatever. And I'm involved as a part of a team. I find myself writing that program on the weekend and giving myself 48 hours to, to really think about it. Is this, is this getting at what this person needs? And obviously that's a hard question to answer because we don't have, it's not like, even if you're in the, I I always sort of uh, feel quite privileged that we've got a beautiful strength and power lab. I wish I had that as a young strength coach, a beautiful strength and power lab, fully kitted out with every gizmo you could think of EMG system, IMU system, force plates, force handles, even if you've got all that stuff and you're trying to triage it down, you still need to, at the end of the day, step back and ask that question. Is this, the, does this follow the kiss principle? You know, am I asking too much? And I think, you know, Scotty is a general rule out there is that when you're doing rehab and return to sport type scenarios, it is a, it is the biggest killer to progress 
is doing too much and getting above that person's either mental capacity to handle what they're being asked to do or their physical capacity, in which case we're exceeding that tissue tolerance. Um, and, uh, and it's gotta be, it's gotta be driven with a, a lot of awareness from the coach, um, with that in mind with coaches, you know, uh, that, that, that at the end of the day is a key, the key thing for me. That's a, a, a beautiful response. And I, I want to pivot off that a little bit and come back to Stu in the sense that what I've noticed over the years, and that's, uh, you know, Matt talked about my mission to a degree is if we take the more typical ther- therapist professional and this for anybody listening this is not a downer on therapists or anything but what typically happens is that performance spectrum is not necessarily as known a quantity and so what i've noticed over my career watching other practitioners work is they'll do a lot of the what i would call lower grade uh, threshold strategies and work people through them but the leap from doing something that's call it base strength oriented to doing plyometrics and multi-directional things is very very fast, quite often quite abrupt. And this process of actually introducing things and recognizing and understanding how the athlete decelerates, produces force, all these kinds of things tends to be the gap space where that doesn't necessarily get done very well. So back to that question I asked you earlier about the understanding of tissue tolerance, recognition of how you process through this, you know, I, you you have your spectrum of how you've done things in your career, but maybe try to talk more broadly about the things you've noticed that people need to understand and recognize about that space, that space between, you know, kind of the classic therapy to the, you got to perform and do this stuff and how we don't just leap into it. Well, tell me if I'm on track on this, but I'm just uh, thinking of my own development because I've had a rather unusual path to get to where I am. Working at the university, as I did for over 30 years, we really assessed the mechanics of this linkage, our body being this linkage. And if I want to move or I want to create force or change direction, I have to create strategic stiffness and stability in some parts of the body, and I have to uh, unleash mobility elsewhere. To learn the rules of that linkage took me a lot of years, and that became unifying for me. So it gave me a clue on the rehab side how can I make this linkage work better? What are the parts that are uh, not robust enough to handle the demands? What can I leave alone in the linkage? But it was the same understanding of the linkage that bridges through to performance now. Okay, if I'm going to stop and turn faster, I need a bigger hammer to hit a harder stone. I can't use a soft pillow to push a rope and expect an athletic result. So I think it was that this idea of the linkage, in, in my case anyway, that, that performed that bridge and certainly to help a guy like me who started off as a pure scientist into a bit of a coach and a clinician. But I'd say that with the understanding of, of tissue uh, adaptation and, and healing and, and also the injury mechanisms themselves. But it, it was all rallied around that understanding of the linkage, mm-hmm. which isn't as well known as you would think. Mm-hmm. Dan, with 
how have you counseled, call it counseled, mentored, provided your insight over the years to young, younger therapists or therapists to come in to recognize and understand what that gap proposition is, how, how they should negotiate that process and understand that process more? Because that's kind of, I, I think, if I may be mistaken, but in, in the injury construct, that's kind of your bread and butter is understanding you know, what you should be <clears throat> delivering when you should be delivering it. I really like what Studia said. I like that term linkage. <clears throat> I, I think a lot of young therapists are really knowledgeable on anatomy, but not kinesiology. They, they don't know how systems interface, interact, or depend. And they don't understand the tensegrity model of the body. So one of our mantras is what else? Where else? If you've got a, a virus or an issue here, Everything in that solar system is reacting to that. Now, some, some may be big reactors, some might be minor, but a conspiracy of minor reactors to a fault or an, an impulse could create chaos in a real short period of time. So it's understanding the ergonomics and the biomechanics of the task, but how these systems interface and affect the task. So these gaps that grow yeah, my complaint with classic PT is it's too linear and it's very, very logically based and return to form defies logic in a lot of instances. So we know that we want early introduction of changes and variability and forces, velocities, angles of insult, and duration of these forces. And so how are we juggling those first principles in all the return to play work or even a normal programming? It's easy for us as coaches to get biased in programming. Well, I'm an intensity guy. I'm a volume guy. When we know from tissue research, variability is critical. We're chasing the body's ability to express itself in a multitude of manners. Uh, I'd really like if you could do a Coles Notes version of what you went through, say, with Alpine Canada to create, as a team, create a return to sport protocol. Like, what went into that, in essence, so that you could feel you had the critical, um, you know, benchmarks and moments and understanding of what was next, what should come next. You guys went through a process. How did... Walk me through how you did that in a Coles Notes way for for the listener, because some people are faced with that. They have to sit down with a coaching group or with a with a, yeah. a group and figure out what they're going to do as a proposition of construct for return to sport. Yeah, I mean uh, it's great, Scotty. I mean, I think I think first uh, first and foremost, and and this is in no specific order. It's just kind of what comes to mind. Um, I found great value in getting into other people's worlds. And so I can remember, you know, the first time uh, I worked really closely with one of our, one of our surgeons in the area who does a high fraction of our, our ACL reconstructions for our winter slope sports. Um, I mean, I, I remember sp I, I spent days with him up in the, up, up following him basically into the OR and around with the patients and just sort of watching what he did and, and watching his calculus for, for how he was approaching things wow, did that ever increase my understanding of what, of what goes on? You know what I mean? Like it's way too easy to sit on your other side of the table and be like, ah, oh, you know, they don't get it, you know, or 
why doesn't everybody think like me until you walk in there and you, and your eyes are opened a little bit to what, what's involved. So that would be my first thing was I put myself out there and I got out of my little lane and I, you know, I always joke about this, but I remember the very first time I watched, uh, his name's Mark Hurd, but I remember the very first time watching Mark do a semi-tendinosis autograph, did a little incision on pezanserine, right? Medial aspect of your tibia. And, uh, you know, he's like, oh, there's my tendons. And I was like, oh yeah, right. Yeah. I remember that. And, and going back to anatomy class, we did tons of cadaver work. That was one of my things I did in grad school was prep the cadavers for our, uh, our, our, our undergrads and our graduates. And I, uh, figure I knew, I knew enough, right. See him grab his tendon stripper and hook onto the semi-tendinosis tendon and zinc, pull the whole thing out. And I just, for some reason, I never really conceived that he would remove the semi-tendinosis tendon. I don't, I, I don't know why I didn't really think that through. I thought maybe a piece of it or a portion of it, but I just remember being dumbfounded and blown away by that. And so I think what that allowed me to do, Scotty, and I'm using this as a representative example, is that you're trying to bring people together as a team to be able to create something that we all buy into. We have common ground and shared values. And I don't think you can do that if you can't appreciate the lens through which the other person sees the world. So um, that would be one advice uh, piece of advice is, you know, we've got to make those connections and we've got to, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to find the common ground there. Um, Certainly the other piece of the puzzle is, uh, my develop ongoing development. Uh, and I am saying ongoing cause it's not easy of, um, of leadership and, um, mentorship and for being able to create group positive group dynamics. Like that's a tough one, right? Like you need to be able to manage people and personalities in a, and, and just as the injury is complex, those people are, are complex. Our team is complex. And I'm talking about the support team or that group that's aiming to help that person come back and implement the framework. So, you know, ongoing work there, I think for anybody on the call that is, is thinking about putting themselves in a position where you, you want to do that, or you need to do that. I, I believe that, you know, after you've gone and you've, and you've tried to look at the world from somebody else's lens is you need to really work on your own personal leadership and your own personal blind spots in terms of how you lead and manage, because people will say things that will piss you off and people will say things that will push your buttons and you need to learn to manage your emotional responses so that you can accomplish the end goal. And, you know, that's for all of us, right? Like that doesn't make me to say that, you know, I'm, get my buttons pushed all the time and I react poor, poorly, but it's something that I think helps us. If, if to answer your question, Scotty, we're trying to do a better job of managing this. Um, and then, yeah, I think the last piece, Scotty, is I've, I've always just, and this is sometimes in some places been a kiss of death for me, but in this particular instance, it was helpful as I was really in great, in, engaged in a more collaborative approach to creating something rather than me imply, imposing what I thought it should look like. Um, but, but let's be honest, at some point you have to also impose what you think it needs to look like, but you need to, you, you, it has to have some sort of collaboration in, in it for people to, to buy in. And, uh, I'll end by saying persistence, like even with a framework and even with all that hard work, we still have instances where athletes are four months post-surgery and they go in for a checkup with a practitioner, whether it be a surgeon or a physician or whatever, and the athlete gets the green light. We're <laughs> going back on snow in two months. I think you should be good. Honestly, this feels good. I think you're going to be ready to go in six months. Okay. <laughs> hey, guess what? 
I'm good to go. I, I've been given green light for six months. And, you know, Doc said, I don't think that's what he, what he meant. I think he, you know, we're still battling up against that. Like how do we create a team decision-making process and input and, you know, really, you know, take the time and yeah, Scotty, it's an ongoing thing to come back to change our, our ways of operating. Cause we've all got them and, and we default back to what we do. And, mm-hmm. um, that takes time and patience. So my last piece there would be, be for anyone who's wanting to do that to answer the question, be, be patient. It's going to take some time. Always does. I want to pivot off that last comment to Stu with, I want your viewpoints Stu, on the MRI. So you get the athlete that comes in with the MRI that's been told that they have the disc problem. And now they're in this perfunctory funk because of what they've been told their problem is. So history tells us that that's not always going to be the thing that, that either is the solution or the problem. How have you negotiated that, like these other tests and how we work past them, but also use them, you know, effectively to measure and monitor and decide where we're going and how, what turns we're going to make. Right. Well, uh, the MRI is a double-edged sword. Uh, the, the, the flaw in the system is the radiologist who reads the MR has never seen the person. That's the flaw. So the MR shows the full history of that person. It shows all of their old scars, which might look horrible on MRI, but they're years old. They don't cause pain. And they also show the fresh wounds that are causing the pain. But without the perspective of the assessment, you don't know whether that is significant or not. But you know it's there. So the assessment is king. And then you show the athlete uh, what, with precision, their pain triggers are and what their flaws are leading to these stress concentrations causing their pain. And then you give them the antidote immediately. So let's say they have a bulging uh, disc with an open fissure posteriorly on the fourth root. We'll be as precise as that. And then I'll say, look, bend over, pretend you're playing shortstop in baseball, stand up, pull your hips through, don't change the curve of your back. And we just workshop that for 10 minutes. And then they do it without pain. And and they said, you mean I'm not going to be in a wheelchair? And this is true. I have had people, and I said, whoever, where did you get the idea that you're going to be in the wheelchair? Oh, well, when I came out of the MR, the technician looked up at me and said, oh, son, you're going to be in a wheelchair. And th- these ideas of degenerative disc disease, I've never seen a disease. I've, I've seen injury and damage, with which when you know what it is, uh, you have uh, a bit of a plan to deal with it. So the MRs in my business, they're tremendously helpful because I get the person who's at the end of the road. They've seen a lot of different people, and I do an assessment. I see uh, there might be two or three pain triggers, but there might be five features on the MR but I missed one and everyone else. There might be a Tarloff cyst on a nerve root. And that's why when they move in this position, they get a, a rage uh, down their right leg or whatever it happens to be. So uh, I don't know if that helps or not uh, in the right hands with the right interpretation and the right assessment, the MR can be invaluable, but to be told someone has a degenerative disease or something non-specific like that is terribly destructive from top to bottom. 
Well, guys, I want to honor um, your time. Uh, this has been a fantastic hour of conversation and uh, true to form probably could go on for several hours. Uh, I'd rather be in a, a bar with a, a beer or something doing that. But anyways, uh, thank you, Dan. Thank you, Stu. Thank you, Matt, for your time. You guys have been fantastic. And for those listening, I hope you took some threads of uh, wisdom away and are able to maybe use that to to benefit your own practice. So thank you guys. Thank you for your time today. Thanks, Scott. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Yeah, thanks, guys. Take care, gang. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.